Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we're joined by Dr. Alicia Andrzejewski, who's going to talk to us about ghosting in academia. Welcome to the show, Alicia. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I am so glad that you're here and that you are brave enough to take us through this very difficult topic and an important topic as well. But before we dive into that, will you please tell us about yourself? Sure. So I am a professor at uh, the College of William and Mary. I was hired to teach Shakespeare, uh, early modern literature, um, but I am mainly teaching in my subfields, which is critical gender studies, race studies, and the medical humanities. I, my first book is the book I'm working on right now, um, Deadline June 1st, scary, is Queer Pregnancy in Shakespeare's Plays. So um, I bring together feminist readings of pregnancy with queer theory to make the argument that, first of all, um, queer people did and can get pregnant, um, which is something that I I find queer theorists um, who resist reproductive futurity um, don't take into account. Um, But also just that pregnancy is this queer, strange experience. Uh, But as you know um, from inviting me on your podcast, I also have um, an interest in a great interest in public facing writing. So I do a lot of writing for online venues, everything from the Boston Globe to the LA Review of Books to the Chronicle. So this is really, you know, a, a rich and important part of of who I am and and my professional trajectory is writing for the public. So I do have the peer-reviewed book, but pieces like this Chronicle piece are very important to me as well. When you were considering what you wanted to do with your life, yes. um, how did you find your path? How did I find my path? Well, I started out as a music major, interestingly enough, but I've always loved reading and I grew up internationally as an expatriate. So I lived in Thailand, Holland, Canada, Brazil, England, and one author that just happened to um, be uniform across those countries and continents was Shakespeare. So I always had a love for him. Um, And as I moved through my degree, I realized that I didn't want to be alone in a practice room. You know, I played saxophone. I'd much rather be uh, discussing literature, reading literature. And uh, so I ended up switching to an English major. And I just sort of carried that on. I went to um, my master's Program. I got a degree in, in literature there and then ended up at the Graduate Center at the City University of New York for my PhD. Um, I 
find that even though my first two books will be on Shakespeare, I'm more interested in cultural studies. So I always joke that I'm just as happy analyzing Love is Blind or something like that as I am Shakespeare. But I, I'm just really invested in in the humanities and the human and people and emotions and feeling. And I find that Shakespeare was just a really good place to bring all those interests together. And teaching literature um, offers the opportunity to talk about um, what it means to be human, right? The humanities. So, so that's sort of how I ended up where I am. And I feel very grateful and lucky to do what I do, um, to read and write for a living. Do you get to keep up with your music? You know, I sold my saxophone to move to New York City. As listeners probably know, it's a very expensive place to live. Um, But I have continued to play piano and, you know, I sing to my daughter. And so hopefully as she, I have a five-year-old daughter, so hopefully as she gets maybe more into music, I can rekindle my my love for that. But not as much as as I would like. Um, But it it definitely... Um, was an important part of my life, and I'm hoping hoping to return to it. You recently wrote a piece for the Chronicle of Higher Education on academic ghosting, and it opens, I often think about the first time a colleague ghosted me. Mm. It was about two months into a burgeoning friendship and collaboration. Mm-hmm. And then you talk about uh, parts of that collaboration, and then you say, then abruptly, without explanation, my colleague ceased all communication as if dead. Yes. Is that experience what inspired you to research and write this article? Yes. You know, and it's funny, there were versions of the piece that that anecdote didn't make it into. Um, I feel, I still feel incredibly vulnerable about um, this experience and what inspired the piece. Ultimately, I feel in my writing, especially in these public-facing pieces and the the memoir pieces I write, that it's important for me to be vulnerable um, and that that adds something important to the writing. So I decided to go for it and be brave and be honest. But as I describe in the article, that feeling of, well, it must have, there must have been something wrong with me. Like there must have been something that I did. Um, and I actually have joked and it's not really a joke that, you know, this colleague would come forward and, and, and tell everyone the horrific thing that (laughs) I did to deserve to be ghosted and completely undermine the piece. But, you know, then I thought, well, at least I'd know, at least I'd know what happened because that not knowing, um, as I, you know, described in the piece is it, it was an experience, um, I had never experienced it before, that the feeling of being ghosted. You know, I met my husband before I had to get into online dating, um, which is, you know, the typically what we think of when we think about ghosting. And and I and it was such a unique and particular experience and and such a terrible feeling, um, especially in a professional context that I felt inspired to look into it more, to understand what I was going through. Were you surprised how many people shared this experience? Everyone has a story, you know, and I don't know if surprised is the right word, but maybe sad um, and devastated. I remember Uh, right at the beginning when I was just starting this piece and starting to talk to sources. Um, I was, I visited James Madison university to talk about a previous Chronicle piece I had written for the Chronicle um, about my experience being harassed by two male students. And I was out to dinner with the Dean and I was telling her about this new piece on academic ghosting. And, you know, I was sitting in front of this professional woman, um, very composed, very um, just, you know, uh, regal almost. And she started talking about her her own experience with being ghosted by colleagues. And I just, um, from that moment forward, 
almost expected that that people would have a story and it's it bolstered me to to keep going i think that if i had found that not everyone i spoke with um had some story like this then maybe i would have felt less comfortable to share my experiences but it really i found it to be incredibly pervasive and it's sort of um with each person I talked to, each person that had a story just confirmed to me the need to write this beyond, beyond just, you know, trying to personally reflect and, and grow from my experience. Were there common themes in ghosting that you found? I was really interested. There, there are many common themes, but what I kept coming back to when I was writing it's just that terrible feeling. Um, I really wanted to focus on the what I call the ghosties as opposed to the ghosters. You know, that's one comment I got when I was sharing early drafts is, well, what about the ghosters? You know, why do people do this? And, and I think those are important questions. And, you know, I have some thoughts on them, some answers. To them, I think in academia, we're all exhausted, we're overworked, you know, um, especially younger professors, professors of color, female professors, and, you know, inboxes, every, I, I would say it's also universal for everyone to feel overwhelmed by their, their inboxes, right? Um, but I think that there's a distinction between being overwhelmed and maybe missing a few emails and then circling back um, than the behavior I was describing. But I was much more interested because of my own experience in just how terrible and demoralizing it felt um, or it feels to be ghosted. And, and that was sort of the common theme that I focused on that really pulled the piece together because there's so many distinct kinds of ghosting in academia, right? Like it's very different to be ghosted by an advisor than it is to be ghosted on the job market in even different levels of the job market, right? Like one, one thing that didn't make it into the piece was, you know, this parallel I made between like dating apps and the academic job market, you know, if you, if you swipe left or, yeah, I don't know whether it's right or left to reject somebody on an online dating app, but if you, you know, decide you don't ever want to meet up or talk to them, right, that's, that's not ghosting, right? So in the early stages of the job market where you're sending off your applications and you don't hear back, that's a bad feeling, but it, it, it wasn't the phenomenon I was thinking about. I was thinking about more, you know, in the later stages of the job market where you're interviewed um, and you speak with people and you start to form new relationships with them kind of like, and I know these parallels can be icky, but um, you know, kind of like a first date. And then the campus visit is maybe like a second date. And um, you know, it was really those later stages I was focusing on um, getting to know somebody and beginning to form a relationship only to never hear from them again. And then that is very distinct from my experience of being ghosted by a colleague who felt like a friend, right? So what I, how I tried to pull all of those together was this real focus on that feeling of being ghosted, um, how it exasperates the imposter syndrome so many of us live with um, in academia, how it even exasperates existing mental illnesses, the, um, the just that pain. Um, and it's such a unique kind of pain. That's the common uh, thread or theme that I try to address in bringing um, you know, these distinct kinds of ghosting and academia together. Um, and the other thing I would say is that, you know, I, a, a common thread would be just what we were talking about before, that everyone in academia that I spoke with seemed to have some kind, you know, to varying degrees, uh, some level of being ghosted by someone they had formed a relationship with. And that 
to me felt more structural. And I, you know, really tried to think deeply about what what is it about academia across all these different kinds of ghosting as a profession that allows for this? Because in my mind, you know, it's incredibly unprofessional to ghost somebody, um, to not just even send a, a brief email um, per offering that closure. And so I was really interested in, you know, academia is not dating. It's a professional space. What's the common thread and themes um, that allow for this? And I don't know that I answered that question particularly well in my article. I certainly have some thoughts. You know, I think that um, academia and the relationships we form, the speaking about ideas to one another, the um, sharing writing with each other, the relationship right between a mentor and a mentee, these can be intimate relationships or they can feel more intimate than relationships in other kinds of spaces. So I thought deeply about how that intimacy might create the conditions for more ghosting. And then I also thought a lot about power, the common theme of power, these power dynamics that allow certain people to be ghosts and and others to not. And so those were sort of the common themes that I was focusing on uh, in talking to so wide a range of academics, uh, wider and, and I, by that, I mean in stages of their career. I talked from everybody, um, from grad students to tenured, pro, tenured professors. Do you wish you'd known more about ghosting uh, when you were a grad student? Um, it seems like it's part of the hidden curriculum. And we don't learn it until it suddenly happens to us. And then we often have a real gap between when it happens and when we start looking for help or we start getting a real sense of what we can do to move ourselves forward? Yeah, I mean, I would say that I don't wish the feeling of being ghosted on anyone. So it's not that I wished I had had more experience with it, I had a good advisor in graduate school, like so many of us, sometimes he would miss an email, but ultimately he was there for me when I needed him, like when I needed a form signed, and, you know, um, and yeah, it's true that, you know, I, I did experience ghosting on the job market, but I ended up with a job, which sort of, I feel softens the blow of of being ghosted on the job market. So in many ways, I was incredibly lucky. I didn't have that experience, um, you know, any really painful, difficult experiences before um, the experience with my colleague. And I don't know that I say I wish I had been more of an expert on it, but it certainly came out of left field. And I, and that, that was a common thread too, that, you know, there's just nobody that it felt like nobody was talking about this when, when grad students, especially, um, were going through that experience of being ghosted by their advisors or, or mentors, they, they felt very lost. And there's also that shame, too, um, the shame around being ghosted, the feeling that that you're the problem. And so it can be incredibly isolating. So I don't really know. I mean, that was my hope with the article is that it would at least offer maybe some, um, not consolation, but it might help with those isolating feelings. And in my experience, I just... I don't think there is anything that could have prepared me for how I felt after I was, after I was ghosted. Um, but certainly if, if I had heard of an article or if I, if I had known that it was as common, like as I do now, um, it might've felt 
a little bit better. Because it's not just you. Yeah, it's not just me. And also the research I did on ghosting, like I remember lying on my couch when it first happened, just being feeling really in, in pain. And one thing that didn't make it into the article was a few paragraphs on this common theme of um, that pain manifesting into physical symptoms like being unable to sleep. You know, my sources talked about um, panic attacks, being unable to sleep, like obsessively checking email, right? Um, it's, it's a bodily experience. And I just remember being on my couch and Googling ghosting and starting to, you know, look for information because I'm a researcher. That's what I do. You know, I try to make sense of my own experience through research. And all of the articles I was finding were on dating. Um, But I was told over and over again that if somebody ghosts, you know, that is a behavior that um, suggests an inability to set clear boundaries, um, a kind of emotional insecurity. There's avoidance, right? You don't want to have difficult conversations. And so everything I was reading was sort of saying like, it's not you, it's them. <laughs> but it, didn't, it, it made it feel a little bit better, but, but not totally. Um, and certainly it was all of those articles were in a con- in in the context of dating, which was not what I was experiencing. Um, so that's just a, a long way of of saying that. Yes, I I I think I I wish I wish that I would have had um, an article like the one I wrote when I was going through that experience at first. I I will say that I don't know that the article, um, because I covered so many kinds of ghosting, as I said, um, did enough with colleagues ghosting other colleagues. Like that's a lot of the writing that ended up getting cut because I did talk to a lot of sources who experienced something similar to me. You know, these collaborations where someone just drops off the face of the planet. You're invited. There was a lot of stories of being invited to do edited collections or, um, you know, put together an online journal or be on a panel only to never hear from that person again, to have them just drop off the face of the earth. Um, and that was similar to what I went through, but the power dynamics are different amongst colleagues. I, I do think though, the second someone goes, they're the ones that have the power. Um, so, so yes, you know, I, I think the article could have done a better job of including stories about colleagues ghosting other colleagues. But at the end of the day, I just talked to so many people. I've been working on this piece for so long, and there was just no way to include everyone's stories, unfortunately. Um, what I tried to do was, as you said, pick out those those common, common threads. It feels personal. And I think mm-hmm. one thing that separates it from a dating app is that it it's the personal in the midst of the professional. So you feel in some ways like they know an awful lot about you before they reject you. Yes. I mean, in my experience, you know, I had shared um, writing like the kind I did for the Chronicle that was incredibly personal. And there is something about the exchanging of ideas and information um, that that is that is intimate, and I do think that those blurred boundaries in academia allow for some behaviors that would be unacceptable in other professional contexts. My father is a businessman, and you know he tries to read my stuff, but he, <laughs> you know, he does his he does his best. Um, He's so funny. I remember one time um, he was, I saw on his computer, he was Googling early modern drama. Like he didn't know what it was. Like he was trying to figure out what it is I do. Um, But he does try to read my pieces, but this one really resonated with him. And he called me and he said, you know, my company trained me. Like nobody likes to send those emails. You know, nobody likes to reject 
somebody else outright and be honest about it. But it's the ethical thing to do. Um, and he said, you know, this kind of behavior would not be tolerated um, in, in my line of work or at least in his business, um, excuse me, like the, the business he worked for. And he also told this great story about um, when he was first on the job market. And he actually, he had an interview with Pfizer and he said that the he had gotten another offer and the guy who interviewed him had called him up and said, look, I think I can offer you the job. I'm just not sure it's gonna take a couple of weeks. Um, for me to know. And that phone call, like he said, he always remembered it because it was this acknowledgement that he was a human being, right? That he might have other offers, that he needs to know his status, right? That he has a life. And it was a reciprocal kind of moment um, that allowed him to move forward. And that's what I heard from a lot of academics that I interviewed about being ghosted on the job market, that that they wanted that kind of information or they needed that kind of information. And there's a million reasons we're told why that can't happen. Like the search is still open. We can't notify people until the search is closed, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but talking to him made me realize, you know, that these moments are in fact humane moments when you can be honest with someone about their status, when you can be honest with someone about not having the resources or information to give them the answers they want, um, all these kinds of things. So it was really interesting talking to my dad after after writing the article and, and hearing his thoughts on the kind of moral aspect of, of what's happening. And it really made me hope for something, something better. And, you know, I got um, one email in particular after the piece came out from a professor who said, you know, this piece inspired me to reach out to applicants who were no longer in the running. And it was an emotional moment for me because that was kind of my hope. You know, nobody likes giving bad news and nobody likes receiving bad news, but that closure and information is often necessary for us to move, move forward. And it's the mature professional and humane thing to do. So yeah, speaking with my father about that really um, clarified and shed some light on what I was trying to do with this article and the Academy I want. The reality is, if you're doing the invitations for who's coming to campus and you selected the five, mm -hmm. the other 100 in the pool, it's already bad news for them. Yeah. So by not sending the email and notifying them, it's how long do you live them in the real leave them in the reality of the bad news and how much of a roller coaster do you put them on? Because it's bad news either way. Yeah. Exactly. And I, you know, I really didn't touch on those hundreds of emails uh, as much because I do think that's a labor issue. Um, Karen Kelsky wrote a response to this piece um, entitled, It Costs Money to Be Moral, in which she makes the argument that it's in fact, you know, funding for people like administrative assistants who would do the work of sending those emails. And I don't think it's as simple as that. I do think it's a, a moral issue and that often, you know, like <laughs> you don't need money to be moral. Um, I was more focused on the later stages of the job market and the more intimate relationships. But certainly those, those hundreds of emails, um, one person in response to the article, one, one academic said, there's actually just a button you can click on Interfolio to notify applicants that they're no longer in the running. You know, we have so much technology these, these days. There's, there's got to be a way, like as you said, to let people know they haven't made it past the first stage. Like I've actually heard of departments updating the academic job wiki themselves to, I mean, in that sort of a subversive way to give applicants information, right? Like if you haven't, cause everyone's checking it, you know, if you haven't heard from us, um, 
officially, you know, you're out of the running. So there are a lot of ways to do exactly what you said. Just let people know, know their status. When I was on the job market too, I got a really lovely letter from Princeton's writing program that said exactly, you know, what um, it said, you, you made it to the final round. Um, we are interviewing our f- actual finalists. Um, the potential for you, for us to interview you remains, but, um, so, but we have sort of moved to the next stage. So it was almost their way of saying like, this isn't completely closed, but if you have other opportunities or offers, we're just sort of updating you on the status. And I really appreciated that letter because even though it was kind of a rejection it was it was sort of saying like we you know we were impressed by your application and um you know there's still we would still love to interview you and have you work for us we just you know um we have moved on in that way so it was a way of keeping it open with you know without completely foreclosing the potential, but also saying we've, we've moved to the next stage. So there are lots of ways to, to app, um, update those hundreds of applicants in the early stages um, of their status. There's really no excuse. But I do think that once you get to the final stages, like, for example, um, I did Zoom interviews, and I didn't hear anything from two of the uh, schools I interviewed with. And, you know, those were, okay, maybe they're just 30 minutes. One was 45 minutes, but I got to know the department. I researched the department. I researched the faculty there. You know, I did all the legwork that you do when you get a second round interview. And so I did feel like it, it wouldn't be too much to ask it wouldn't have been too much to ask for some of those committees to reach out and say, look, we enjoyed our converse, our conversation with you, but we ultimately selected somebody else. Um, I don't know that an administrative assistant in that, in those examples, in that case, in the later stages would be appropriate. You know, it sort of feels like a shield against having to give someone, someone bad news yourself. And, and that's, that is, it does feel like a maturity thing. Um, it's something required of leaders, right, to be able to deliver those. And it's a responsibility to be able to deliver clo- bad news and, and closure in the most humane way possible. So I honestly don't know why we're not doing it. One of the reasons you listed in the article was guilt. And I sat with that part for quite a while and thought about it because they're privileging their temporary discomfort Mm -hmm. with someone else's prolonged discomfort. Yes. All I have to say to that is yes. And, you know, I empathize. I, I mean, I struggle, you know, when I'm, when I'm grading papers, uh, William and Mary students are so on top of everything. And so, intense about learning and therefore grades. And so, you know, I've had to practice, especially as a young female professor, giving the bad news of anything but an A, right? Um, But it's in service of their learning, you know, to learn, we have to be uncomfortable. And I think it's similar with, with ghosting. In some cases, you know, if my colleague, for example, had let me know what happened, you know, what was happening, if, if there was something I did, um, especially if it was egregious. And I've racked my brain. I have racked my brain. Um, I would ultimately, you know, be upset and hurt and, you know, disappointed in myself, but then I could grow. You know, just like my students, if they get less than an A, I let them know what they can do to improve. Um, and just I, I, I do think that um, what you said about guilt over making somebody feel uncomfortable is, is just not a good excuse because, in fact, you're prolonging their discomfort um, or you're in some ways stunting their ability to learn and grow. 
Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. It's difficult when it's a colleague to ask around if this is a pattern. Because you don't want to... Um, you don't want that to look like you're causing divisiveness. Yes. It's a difficult thing when it's someone who's too close in to you and the people around you to ask, you know. Yeah. And I did it. What might be going on? Yeah. Yeah. And I did it. You know, I mean, really, and I do feel like the Chronicle article was vague enough. Like, I don't even know that, you know, my colleague has read it or knows about it. And, even if they did, would know it was them. Maybe in their life, this is not a big deal, you know? Um, But I definitely, because of the shame, right, um, I definitely didn't ask around or or try to, you know, and I, I do try to be professional and ethical. And um, just because they did that to me doesn't mean in my mind, you know, I don't want revenge. I don't want, <laughs> you know, um, I don't have any ill wishes towards them. So it, again, but that, as you, I think you were suggesting, increases the isolation, the isolating feelings. And I still, you know, even now just talking about it, I'm I'm so uncomfortable. I'm like, in my mind, my narrative is like, I, I'm sure it was me. I'm sure it was me and what right do I have to have this article and all those voices, you know? Um, But ultimately my hope was to reach out to people who might be feeling the same, the same way. Um, But certainly the professional space for those of us who respect it um, in that way makes it difficult to um, feel less, feel less alone in it. For you, it was a colleague. For some of the people in your piece, they're grad students. Mm. They're trying to finish their dissertation. Mm. It's their advisor or their mentor. Um, And while the emotions of it are similar to the loss and grief and confusion that you felt, there is a whole financial stake for them. Do you want to talk about when it's not um, someone who's a one-to-one, it's not your colleague, it's someone who has a great deal of power over your future? Yes. I mean, it was absolutely devastating. Some of the stories I heard, you know, um, delayed graduation, extra semesters of tuition. I, you know, quoted one of my sources in the article saying that the academy is complicit in financial fraud by not holding um, people in power over over students, grad students' futures accountable. Um, if an advisor ghosts even after graduation, it might not mean more tuition, but it, it means a lost recommendation letter, which matters when you're seeking employment. Um, even I, I spoke to one source that he didn't make it into the article, unfortunately, but he selected his PhD program based on an advisor who expressed interest in working with him and, you know, um, made the move across country as we do, um, set up a whole, whole new life only to have her ghost him once he was there. And, 
you know, he ended up forming a new committee and things were fine, but it took him longer because he was worried about stepping on her toes. He didn't know what was going on. I mean, the implications for entire, the trajectory of academics, um, early career academics, entire career is reliant on these advisors and mentors. And again, ghosting, I mean, there's no way around the fact if you ghost somebody, you are, like you said, prioritizing your comfort over their discomfort, but you're also, um, it's dehumanizing. You are in essence saying, I don't, not just I don't care about your feelings, but in the case of advisors and mentors, I don't care about your career. I don't care about the material implications of me doing this. Um, You are not a priority. And that has everything to do with, with power. And so those stories were particularly um, difficult for me. There were some academics who actually left the profession, didn't graduate, um, you know, um, the struggle to get the recommendation letters after after graduation to impacted their employment prospects. It was just really horrifying. And so would it be better um, for these ghosts to send an email saying, you know, I just can't help you anymore? I mean, that would be devastating and also shirking responsibility, in my opinion. But at least there would be some... record of them shirking that responsibility, right? Um, and that has implications to, um, to moving for, for the ghosty to move forward. So yes, as very different from my experience, but, uh, when, when I decided to write this piece, I did want to hear from a wide range of academics. So I opened it up beyond colleagues. And I'm, I'm glad I did because I think it's a more pressing issue, advisors and mentors um, ghosting their advisees. I'm struck by some of the parallels between those two situations, yours with your colleague, the isolation, the not being able to ask around because it is, it is their colleague as well. Mm-hmm. For the grad student, having to tread very carefully in asking someone else in the department to become their advisor yes, because they don't want to come from a place of complaining about the person or their professionalism, even though those are in play because they can't risk that and they need to do everything to go forward. Yes. I mean, and, and there's also, so there's the, the fact that you are in essence trying to figure out how to not complain about someone's colleague who they might have a close relationship with and asking around, you know, and trying to form a different committee. Um, but there's also implications for other students, right? And, and how you navigate your cohort. One story that didn't make it into the piece was actually a student came out as trans and there was an entire research group um, of this professor, their advisor or mentor and all of his mentees. And the student found out like they thought that that research group had been disbanded, but they were just meeting without them, without this student who came out as trans. And I'm happy to report that that the student switched universities and ended up getting their degree and it's and feels like in the end, um, to quote them, they won. Um, but I was I was totally shocked because it wasn't just the advice well first there's the issue of discrimination, right? Um, and then there's the issue of the advisor rescinding support. Um, but then there's also the implications for that student's place in the cohort. Um, so, yes, navigating those spaces after being ghosted is, um, you know, it's, a, it's an impossible tightrope. There's, there's so many feelings this is bringing up for me as it is for you because it's just incredibly unlikely that anybody makes it through 
academia without this happening to them. And it stays in most cases permanently unresolved. Just as you shared earlier, you are not angry with this person. You don't want other people to be. Right. You just want peace and closure and if possible growth. Yes. Um, and we're left with a very weird kind of grief. Yes. Because we don't know what happened. Yes. And we speculate endlessly about what it could have been. None of the fantasies, right? The the terrible fantasies um, kind to ourselves. I'm thinking of some of the things you have in the article about reasons why ghosters said they they either were pressured by their department to not send um, notifications to people who were removed from a search or candidates who weren't going to be offered a spot in grad school. And they don't seem in step with where the world is now because we can go on social media mm-hmm. and find in a blindsiding way that someone just got our job or they just got our spot in the grad department where they just got um, the co-editor uh, position for a journal, fill in the blank, but you'll find out Yes. Uh, ultimately what the result was. You still won't find out why you were taken out of the running. Yeah. And I don't know that it's feasible, right? And this is across professions to give feedback to everyone as to why, they didn't get a position right. Um, and I do think that in in the case of some ghosters, that's a barrier, you know, to they don't want to open up that conversation. And, and to a certain extent, that is understandable because it's just um, untenable. But I, I've actually seen professors on Twitter um, who chair searches or chair admissions committees um, say that they take on that labor. They make the effort to let um, applicants know they were not chosen and maybe a few lines about why. And it tends to be uh, women, um, women of color, people of color, uh, early stage career academics, um, who people with in fact less power and time to do it that, that take on the labor of, of, um, just trying to offer information, like some information for growth, for closure. And so it does happen, right? It, it does. Um, and we aren't, because we're not talking about it, we're not getting creative about solutions um, to to what's happening. And it's funny you brought up finding out on social media, right? Like um, the police to announce posts on academic Twitter, right? Um, that is a terrible feeling too, to find out that way. And I know that a lot of applicants find out that they weren't accepted. Um, And then these online forums like Grad Cafe or the Academic Job Wiki, which are in fact examples of creative solutions to this problem. Um, You would think that people in power uh, would also try to come up with some, some creative solutions using the technology at our fingertips to, to do this. Um, but it tends to be those who have, have been hurt that look for solutions, I find. And as you pointed out, technology has already offered a number of them. There's pushing the button yeah. <laughs> in, in the job search folio. There's, um, I mean, it might be the only good use of robo-calling ever to <laughs> leave everybody a voicemail about the status of the search. Yeah. You know, it, it's, it's so funny. And I do think the rampant imposter syndrome in our field makes this phenomenon even worse. But with my job, with the position at William and Mary, um, I didn't hear for a long time um, and I made the assumption it was true that, that um, they had a candidate 
before me that that I was, you know, at least not first choice. And so I remember when I got the call and it was from the chair who, you know, I, I felt I really connected with her on the visit. Um, I really loved everyone I met. I had the best time. And I saw her calling me and my first thought was how wonderful she's going to call me and tell me, you know, over the phone and not just in an email that I didn't get this position that is so kind and ethical of her because it's hard, right? It's, it's a hard thing to do to, you know, often all candidates are qualified, like all of the finalists would be good fits. You know, I've been on the other side of these searches now, like, and I've seen how decisions are made. And it's never, you know, as clear as we would like to think it is. Um, but that was my first thought. She was actually calling to offer me the job. And, um, but, but I, I imagine, I like to imagine a world where there are those kinds of, of phone calls, you know, like my dad described, like I thought I was getting. Um, I think that is just a more humane way to treat each other all around. Mentioned in the article that one of the excuses or rationales that ghosters gave was that it can look bad for the search. It can harm the search if they have to reopen mm -hmm. um, that original pool of candidates to invite more um, for the job interviews. Um, when I was reading that, I thought, do they really think we're going to think well of them? after they've ghosted us, they're, they're actually harming their relationship. They're not keeping the lifeline open. Honestly, the more I think and talk about it, the more unacceptable it, it becomes. And again, like I'm a new assistant professor. There are fewer and fewer of us. Like sometimes I feel, you know, I described academia as a haunted house, but you know, sometimes I feel like assistant professors these days are like the last generation in a burning building, you know, and that's just on fire and we're just trying to put the fires out. Like I understand what it's like to be exhausted. I'm a, I'm a mom, you know, I, I, I have a lot of responsibilities. Um, but I, I do, I have to give myself credit that I, I do try to, um, do the labor required of doing the, the humane thing. And, and even if it was true that we candidates would um, somehow think worse of a, of a school if they updated them on their status, which I agree with you, it's not true. Um, it's still privileging the institution. It's still privileging the feelings of the search committee or the admissions committee over that of the people who have less power in the situation. Um, so what if, if people sour on your institution because they get rejected? Like they're, that's their right, I guess, you know, it's, it's the professional thing to do is update people on their status. You know, I just keep sort of coming back to that in the specific context of admissions committees and job search committees. And, you know, even for undergrad, undergrad admissions, like you get a letter um, letting you know that you didn't get in. Right. So what's, what's the, why on the job search, especially in later stages, are we not, doing this. There's just, there's no excuse. And again, I do not think it's a lack of administrative assistance. Like at best, that's just putting that emotional labor onto somebody else. And it, in, in my opinion, it's not, um, especially since administrative assistants are so underpaid. Um, it doesn't feel more ethical to me, especially in the later stages of the job search process um, to get a form email um, from somebody who wasn't the person that you were talking to and interviewed by and visited and had dinner with. And, you know, or in the case of MLA interviews, sat in a hotel room with, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's absurd. Um, it's really absurd.
We've talked about how ghosting can happen in job searches uh, from your mentor, from your collaborators, from your advisor, from your colleagues, from your cohort. Mm-hmm. Um, did any of the ghosties talk to you about what happens when the ghoster pops back up? Is there a way forward with the person? You know, um, the only instances in which something like that came up was, um, you know, a, a ghostie described being ghosted, not knowing why, and then later finding out that the person was sick, um, or in some cases had even passed away, in some cases um, had switched institutions. But so it wasn't that they popped back up. It was just that they got an answer. You know, the second you get an answer, right, the idea is like you've no longer been been ghosted, maybe. Um, I don't know if I completely agree with what I just said, but um, they got in some kind of answer. Um, I can speak for myself, you know, I think we all, like those of us who have been ghosted, think often about, we fantasize about what would happen if they pop back up, you know, and what would happen if we got some answers. Um, And I think it's unique and particular to each experience. Speaking for myself, I would love to know, you know, I would love for the person to pop back up and sort of, um, you know, do I deserve an apology? I don't know, um, because I don't have information, but sort of say like, hey, here's why I ghosted. Here's what happened. Um, Even if it wasn't them wanting to repair the relationship, you know, that would help for me. Like I, I, again, I don't, I don't have feelings of anger. I know lots of my sources do, you know, um, I, I've had more than a few readers write me and say, you went too easy on the ghosters. (laughs) Like, you know, um, you needed to be more forceful about the fact that it is a moral failing and a moral problem and, and unacceptable. But I like to think of myself as an empathetic person. I know there's all kinds of reasons for behavior, you know, how we act and what we do. And um, I didn't want to demonize anyone. Um, So my sense is that, um, you know, no, there wasn't, I can't think of any source um, who reached out to say that the ghoster popped back up, like reappeared, right? Um, an apparition, like you can, that's one thing I said is that the thing about ghosts is that they can appear and disappear at will, right? And if you're not a ghost, um, that's not possible. But um, my sense was that answers would be welcomed, a, re- a reappearance would be welcomed and that maybe even if the relationship can't be repaired, you know, some kind of closure would be more than, more than welcome. I did have one of my sources who went on record for the Chronicle piece had um, the member of the search committee who ghosted them or the search, a member of the search committee who ghosted them reach out to apologize, which meant a lot to her. Um, So, I mean, and again, that was sort of my hope in in writing it and trying to focus on how painful it is, is to maybe just make people who might not be aware, more aware of the impact their actions have on others. It seems to me in a system that's got so many holes in the social emotional support departments, um, that there are people who maybe in reading the article, realize that they're a ghoster. Yes. Um, or who reached a point when they were worried that they that they had crossed into that territory and thought, well, there's nothing I can do now. The person's already upset with me. And there are a number of reasons that empathetic people will willingly wipe the slate clean. Mm-hmm. Do you have hope that the ghosters will learn from the article? Of course, of course, I have hope, you know, it's why I, why I write these pieces, you know, why I try to be vulnerable, you know, in my, my other piece to the when students harass professor 
Arts piece, you know, I really put myself out there and it's all in service of just trying to articulate, right, the pain um, that some actions or inactions can cause. And it's not that I want anyone to be consumed with guilt and feel bad or that I'm demonizing anyone. Um, but it is just to say that we can all work to be more responsible to each other. We can, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I, I recognize it's labor, but if we're thinking about priorities, right. Um, and we're thinking about how we spend our time in the academy that we want, you know, a lot of people are already doing the work that I hope this article will inspire, you know, they're being transparent, they're setting boundaries, you know, one thing is the inability to say no, and then getting overwhelmed and ghosting, right? Like being able to say no to only take on too much. I mean, that's a skill. And it's something I'm still working on. I totally get it. You know, but but I do think it's something, especially people in that have power in the academy, need to work on. And my my hope was that in drawing attention to how pervasive it, it is, that maybe some behaviors will change. And and I've seen it, you know, like even just the apologies I've heard of the, you know, some people did joke when they shared it, like, well, you didn't have to call me out like that. You know, I'm checking my inbox as we speak. I mean, ever since I wrote it, you know, I'm, I'm very, like, I was always vigilant about responding to students and stuff, but I'm like, oh, I wrote the piece on academic ghosting. I can't let any email slip through the cracks now, but, but I, you know, that's, I mean, ultimately that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about this avoidance, this, you know, um, unwillingness to have difficult conversations, set boundaries. And yes, my, my deep hope is that um, this piece might pe- make people more cognizant of the impact we have on each other. Like as I ended it, I think we owe each other more. I think we can be better. I think we can renovate the haunted house and it shouldn't just all fall on the people who are desperately trying to do it already. You know, um, it, it's, it's all of our responsibility. Thank you so much for being here today, Dr. Alicia Andrzejewski, and talking to us about ghosting. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and this is The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.